Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 143. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, to like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. I know at the beginning of the podcast you've got a static image of the Brian McClanahan Show logo, but just watch for a little over a minute or so and you'll get to the podcast and you get to watch me do the podcast. So go on out to my YouTube page. That's also at Brian McClanahan. If you want to find those social media outlets without having to go and look for them on your social media accounts, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, and all my buttons are at the top of the page. You can also give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly of the same title. And if you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, where you can sign up for free. It's always free to sign up. But you can also purchase my course on Secession or my course on Alexander Hamilton. They're both available for you, and more courses are forthcoming. So keep a lookout for that. If you do sign up for the McClanahan Academy, you'll get information about that and probably some deals for those who are McClanahan Academy subscribers. So going out and do that. Also, don't forget you can get the Brian McClanahan Show logo at redbubble.com. Go to redbubble.com, put my name in in the search bar at the top, and it'll come up with my logo on t-shirts, mugs, anything you can think of, bags, uh, items for your uh, devices, uh, even a wall clock. So you got all that stuff out there. Go to redbubble.com and do that. Okay. All of that said, I want to talk about something that... um, I think it's an interesting topic, and I've written about it a couple of times in uh, two of my books, and it's something that uh, actually Ron Paul has been focused on for several years now, and that's this issue of earmarks. So he actually wrote a piece uh, on January 16, 2018, on this particular topic, on earmarks, and so I want to read that piece because it's very short, and it gets into this to the heart of this particular issue, and then I'm going to go into some historical context about this, and and talk about uh, what Dr. Paul is saying on this particular issue. So he begins by saying, Last week, President Trump urged Congress to reassert its constitutional authority to direct how federal agencies spend taxpayer dollars. Ironically, many constitutional conservatives and libertarians disagree with the president. The reason is President Trump wants Congress to reassert its authority by bringing back earmarks. So let me stop there for a second. Earmarks have become a pejorative term. It's something that you, you hear And you think, oh my gosh, that's going to lead to terrible spending. But I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So Paul continues, earmarks are line items in spending bills directing federal agencies to spend federal funds on specific projects in a representative or senator's district or state. Congress ended this practice of earmarks several years ago after a public outcry fueled by a widespread misunderstanding of the issue. Earmarks are added to spending bills after the spending levels have been determined. Therefore, earmarks do not increase federal spending. What earmarks do is limit the federal bureaucrats' ability to decide how to spend taxpayer money. That is the key to understanding earmarks. And I'm going to get into that again with a couple of different historical perspectives or historical uh, examples in a minute. 
So he continues, When I served in Congress, I was amazed when self-proclaimed constitutionalists complained about how earmarks prevented funding of federal bureaucrats' priorities. These constitutionalists seem to have forgotten that the Constitution gives Congress sole authority over deciding how taxpayer dollars should be spent. He says, My support for earmarks in Congress did not add one penny to the spending in the bills. I believe that some of the tax money sent to Washington should actually make it back to congressional districts rather than remain in the hands of Washington bureaucrats. In the end, I always voted against final passage of the bloated spending bills. Some call earmarks a gateway drug to big spending. They point to how congressional leadership denied earmarks to members unless the member voted for big spending and other anti-liberty legislation. It is true that congressional leadership used earmarks to reward and punish members. During my years in Congress, earmarks for my district were stripped from bills in an unsuccessful attempt to make me stop voting against unconstitutional legislation. Congressional leaders do not need earmarks to reward or punish members. They can, for example, deny plum committee assignments to those who refuse to toe the party line or discourage donors from supporting them. So here he's getting into the issue of how earmarks can be used as a weapon. And I'm going to talk about the bigger picture of earmarks, but this is that's inside baseball. That's talking about what goes on in Washington, D.C., how these earmarks can be used. Uh, they were used against him. You know, well, if you want this funding, you're going to vote for the bill. And, of course, uh, Dr. Paul would not vote for the bill, so the earmarks are stripped from the bill. He continues, presidents can still use the promise of federal funds to influence congressional votes. Presidential earmarks were crucial to passing Obamacare, and President Trump has threatened to withhold aid from states whose senators oppose his agenda. The removal of earmarks has given the president even greater influence over the legislative branch. And that's true. The fact that there are more representatives and senators willing to vote against big government than in past years has nothing to do with the lack of earmarks. Instead, the liberty movement has led to more liberty-minded members being elected to the House and Senate. While the ideas of liberty are growing in popularity, the majority of the people, and certainly most politicians, still believe the U.S. government should run the economy, run the world, and run our lives. This misplaced faith in big government, not the presence of earmarks, is why most politicians vote for big spending. No politician ever said, quote, now that I can't receive earmarks, I'm abandoning my support for the welfare warfare state. Earmarks are a way for elected representatives to ensure their constituents' tax dollars are spent in a manner that matches constituent priorities. Earmarks do not, by themselves, expand government. Those who oppose earmarks should work to stop so many Americans from demanding government-provided economic and personal security. Earmarks are not the cause of runaway spending, and removing them has done little or nothing to shrink government and regain our liberty. So, again, a very short little piece, but one that I think is essential for understanding spending in Congress. Now, when you look at the Constitution, let's talk about, and he, and he brings up at the beginning, constitutional conservatives get upset about earmarks. He said he was amazed when self-proclaimed constitutionalists complained about earmarks prevented funding or federal bureaucrats. But he does point out that the, the, the amount of the bill, let's say it's going to be a $1 trillion spending bill, that was locked in. An earmark didn't add a billion dollars to the bill or a million dollars to the bill. The earmark was placed in, so they had a, a framework, and then they fit the spending in that. So... The important thing about earmarks, and for us to understand, when you look at this constitutionally, number one, he is correct. Uh, when you look at Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, and of course I talk about that in detail in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. When you look at Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, it's very clear that all spending has to originate in the House of Representatives. Now, what's happened with that? Well, see, he brings up presidential earmarks. What happened with that is that bloated federal spending allowed for the executive branch, and the Congress was part and parcel of this. In fact, John C. Calhoun pointed this out back in the 19th century. The real threat 
The real danger to American liberty is Congress not doing its job by continually punting its responsibility to the executive branch. And they do it over and over again. And they've done it because of budgeting. And that process began because we have a government that spends so much money that has so many different priorities and has so much control of the private and, of course, public sector that it became nearly impossible, at least Congress said, it became nearly impossible for Congress to do the budgeting. So what they did is they forced the executive branch to come up with a budget. And then that's essentially what the Congress works on. Now, the Congress could reject that budget and come up with its own budget, but they usually work that framework into their budget. So they so the president says, I need X amount of dollars for the executive branch, which is, of course, the biggest vehicle driving the budget in the United States. Whether it's for defense spending or domestic spending, the executive branch sets the tone when it comes to spending for the American government, for the general government of the United States. And that even affects state spending, as I'm going to get into with historical examples. So the president then can say, these are the things I want. And guess what? If you don't do what I want, you're not going to get what you want. You're not going to get items in the budget. These are what Paul calls presidential earmarks. Now, that involves the president in the legislative process in a way that is purely unconstitutional. The president is not legislator-in-chief, no matter what your modern political science textbooks will tell you. But, of course, by allowing the president to be involved in the budgeting process, we essentially have created a situation where the president now becomes legislator-in-chief, along with uh, gardener-in-chief, banker-in-chief, commander-in-chief, whatever the case may be, the president becomes all of those things. Labor boss-in-chief, take your pick. Because we think the president or, you know, school board members, chairman of the school board, we think the president should then decide how all of this money is going to be spent. But Congress has a constitutional authority to do this. Now, it can not do what the president wants, but because the, the veto is now used as a legislative hammer, which, of course, is not the way the veto was designed, we have an out-of-control executive branch, and earmarks have nothing to do with that problem. In fact, you could make the case, and Thomas Jefferson made the case, that earmarks are essential for ensuring money is spent more wisely. Because what happens now is that the federal government says, I need X amount of dollars for this particular program. But we don't know how that money is going to be spent in that program because agencies within within that department, in other words, bureaucrats, as Ron Paul brings up, are going to decide how that money is divvied up. This is why you get $100,000 to study the reproductive habits of, of lab rats and things like that. I mean, this is where that you get these crazy dollars being spent on crazy pro, uh, projects, things that Americans would say, why in the heck are we spending taxpayer dollars on this project or this program when it's completely stupid? But yet, when we don't have earmarks... This is exactly what happens. And it's the federal government deciding how money is going to be spent in the bureaucracy, what some people would call the fourth leg of the government. Um, If you look at it that way, then in reality what we have, we actually have six legs of government now. 
because you have the three branches of government, then you have the bureaucracy, then you have the states, which are supposed to be there, and then you have, of course, the deep state, which is the other part of the government. So you have six legs. Now, the government was only designed to have four, and that the three branches of the general government and then the state governments, which would be part and parcel of that. So you take away the state governments and the whole thing should have crumbled. This is how the, the Constitution was sold to the states. If the states don't support it, if the states don't want it, then they would withdraw their consent, withdraw their support, and the whole thing would fall down. So if we go back to earmarks, this is the perfectly Jeffersonian thing to do when it comes to federal spending. And so Ron Paul is 100% correct about this. Everyone who's interested in how money is spent in Washington, D.C. and reigning in corruption should look to bring back earmarks. Now, how can I say that? Because if I see in the Federal Register that somebody spent a million dollars on a bridge to nowhere, well, then you know what? We can say, well, that bridge to nowhere shouldn't be funded next time. And not just that, maybe that idiot that proposed it should be booted out of office. We look at it as a way to bring pork, but pork's already coming back to the districts. It's just they're doing it and we can't even see it. Who wants to filter, comb through mountains of documents of pages of the Federal Register when it comes to laws and how money is spent. I know there are organizations to do that, but the problem is the, the general taxpayer should be able to do that in a more efficient way. They should be able to see these, these things on there and, and ask questions. Why are we spending this kind of money? Why are we doing that? In fact, what this does is transparency. It's transparency that's sorely lacking in the general government because they've made it to where there's no transparency. No one knows what kind of money is spent unless you have a tremendous amount of time to come through all the dollars that are spent. And there are, again, organizations that do this, but you need to be follow those organizations and you need to wait on them to go through all these things and find out this these terrible spending projects. And we're not even sure if all of those are even listed properly. I mean, there might be projects out there that nobody knows about. Obviously there are. There, I'm sure there's, there's uh, you know, black book money off-the-book money being spent in different ways. So Congress is corrupt. That's a real problem. Now, one thing that could help solve this, and it's something I did propose in my Nine Presidents book, would be a line-item veto. But I'm actually going to talk about, in that book, I, I give a couple of examples, and I do talk about Jefferson. Um, I talk about Jefferson and how important it is to understand this idea of earmarks. So back during the first term of Jefferson's administration, Jefferson wanted to ensure that spending was given for specific or targeted appropriations only. In other words, if the Congress was going to spend money, he wanted the American public to understand where that money came from. So I write this in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. Gallatin, who is Jefferson's Secretary of the Treasury, also insisted that appropriations be made for specific purposes. Targeted appropriations are often described as earmarks today. Jefferson and Gallatin believed that they were mainstays of honest, frugal government. The Federalists had often appropriated money in blocks, keep that in mind, blocks, with little or no accountability as to how or when the money would be spent. In some cases, Congress passed appropriation, appropriation bills after the money had already been withdrawn from the Treasury. Jefferson and Gallatin considered this practice to be immoral and illegal, and they were 100% right. So 
The money's taken out, and then Congress says, all right, we're going to spend the money on this. That's what the Federalists were doing. So throughout the Jefferson, Madison, and even into the Monroe administrations, Congress presented appropriations bills with earmarked spending so that the public could both see how and where the public money was being spent and the government could be held accountable to the American taxpayer. This is why earmarks are essential. Earmarks are essential. I want to see the bridge to nowhere. I want to see the study of lab rats. I want to see these things. I want to know how my tax dollars are being wasted by bureaucrats in Washington. The problem is not the earmarks. The problem is wasteful spending. The problem is unconstitutional government. The problem is we've got people in Congress who don't believe in the Constitution. From the, from, in every branch, from the executive branch to the legislative branch, they don't believe in it at all. They don't believe that the Constitution limits the power of the general government, that limits the power of the general government to spend money only in those items listed in Article 1, Section 8. They just don't believe it. And so earmarks, we can spend money on a bridge to nowhere, even though there's no money, there's no power in the Constitution that authorizes the general government to spend money on bridges whatsoever. But that's, that's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. If you believe in unconstitutional government, you're going to spend money unconstitutionally. But at least we could see how it's being done. You can't unless you have earmarks. So it's a great veil for the political class. It actually shields them from transparency, which is why Dr. Paul is right. We need more earmarks, not fewer earmarks or no earmarks. Earmarks are not, are not the problem. The disease is unconstitutional government, the, the expanded unconstitutional powers of the general government, both in the executive branch and the legislative branch, which the legislative branch is often kicking the can down the road and giving the president power to do things the president is not supposed to have the power to do. That is an issue. That is the real issue when it comes to earmarks. So what about this idea of blocks? So I mentioned in that particular paragraph, which was in my chapter on Thomas Jefferson, that the Federalists were actually spending money in blocks. So what we get later on, by the time we get to the Nixon administration, um, we start seeing what are now called block grants. So I want to talk about these things too, because block grants are also a big mess when it comes to real constitutional spending. So Nixon's first budget proposal to Congress immediately balanced the budget through spending cuts. Nixon did not care for the top-down approach to federal spending that Roosevelt and Johnson had made famous during their administrations. Instead, Nixon proposed directly involving the states in the spending process through block grants and what he called the new federalism. Now, anytime you see new in front of a phrase, runaway, right? I mean, so we've got the new nationalism, the new federalism. Essentially, this is just another central takeover of something that shouldn't be there to begin with. So to Nixon, the problem was not the money or the unconstitutional federal programs, but the process. States, he argued, could better handle the distribution of large sums of money and therefore should be trusted with the implementation of federal programs. So at this point, as I say in the book, his idea stalled in the Congress throughout the 1970s. It was only revived long after he left office in the 1990s. This is when we got back in... 
in the 1990s, 1994, you had the Republican Congress come up with the Contract for America, what some people called the Contract on America. Ha-ha. The Contract for America, and the idea was that we're going to go and have uh, block grants. And uh, this is going to allow the states to spend the money. There are so many problems with block grants, though, as I say in this. Most of the block grants attach federal mandates to the money. So states often fail to comply with the mandates because of the mountains of red tape and unreasonable requirements. So Nixon, the micromanager, still wanted to have a say in the, in the money the federal government gave to the states. Now think about that. The federal government is saying, okay, we've collected all this revenue. We're going to give it back to you. Well, why tax it to begin with? Why take it? You see, the real issue about this in, in terms of appropriations and revenue, and this is something that was brought up countless times when the Constitution was going through ratification, is the general government going to swallow up the states, or are the states are going to have a means to get revenue? Because in reality, all the things that we think government does, most of them are done on the state and local level. So your state and local taxes should actually be higher than your federal taxes, because that's where real government takes place. But with these block grants, what they do is they keep federal tax high, federal taxes high, the state taxes can be lower, and they nationalize the spending process. So every state gets these block grants. Now, the political class likes this, gives them cover again, but they're doing something, we're giving, back to, we're giving money back to the states. The states in some ways like it, some ways, because they get money. They, they sit at the trough, they slop at the trough, just like anyone else, and so they're getting money out of it, and they can determine theoretically how that money is going to be spent. And they don't have to raise taxes, and so this, again, if you nationalize taxes, everyone has to pay the same federal tax, but you know certain states have to pay more in taxes here and there. Well, the high-tax states would suffer economically if they had to raise taxes up to pay for all the junk that people supposedly want. And we're seeing this now with places like New York and New Jersey, where the tax rate is extremely high, and people are leaving in droves. They're going to low-tax states like Texas or Florida, because they don't want to pay, or Tennessee, they don't want to pay that horrible income tax. So the fact is, these things work for the political class. But as I say in my book, Nine Presidents, this was a half-cocked solution to an enormous problem, namely unconstitutional federal programs. Nixon had no problem with the programs, only with the way the federal government administered them. Nixon had grown up during the Great Depression and cut his political teeth during the Truman and Eisenhower administrations. Neither of those former presidents favored reductions in government spending. The New Deal had become the model of American government, and Nixon was not going to rock that boat. He remembered the suffering of the Great Depression and believed in federal inter intervention in the economy. Nixon expanded several great society programs and initiatives. In fact, Nixon was responsible for more, than, for more of the growth in unconstitutional federal regulation than Johnson himself. That's often forgotten about the Nixon administration. But that's the case. So when you look at this problem of federal spending, it goes beyond earmarks. It's the structure that's the problem. It's the idea that we have got big, fat government that thinks it draws in tremendous amounts of money, and it's going to dole out that money. It's even going to be so benevolent, it's going to give money back to the states. Well, why take it to begin with? If that's where it needed to be, and again, the mandates that come with it. Um, one of these, one of these, in the future, I'm going to do a podcast. There's a book coming out on Andrew, I'm sorry, not on Andrew, on Lyndon Johnson. 
If it was on Andrew Johnson, it'd probably be uh, extremely negative. And of course, uh, I, I find Andrew Johnson to be interesting. But Lyndon Johnson, and it talks about how people have accepted all these great society programs, Medicare, Medicaid. And when these states get block grants, they say, okay, well, you have to spend this much on Medicaid and you have to match it and you have to do other things. I mean, these, these are real problems when it comes to spending because the general government is not giving enough back oftentimes and the states have to raise revenue for these unconstitutional federal programs anyways. And they just can't do it effectively because they can't raise their taxes anymore because the general government is choking them out. That was argued that would never happen. We're never going to choke out the, the states. They're going to have, the states are going to still be able to raise revenue. The general government chokes out the states. So when you look at this earmark issue, it's the, earmarks would hold the general government accountable. And perhaps what you might see, particularly if everything went to an earmark, which some would say, well, you can't do that. You can't go to your mark because that's going to make the budgeting process too difficult. They, the Congress has essentially one job, and that's to create a budget. Uh, so too difficult, what? They can't take as many vacations as they want to. They actually have to go to work and not campaign and not do things. I mean, this is what they're paid for. So having this type of control over and seeing what type of money spent. Now, Dr. Paul's talking about sending money back to your districts. That money should never leave in the first place. That money should stay right there in those districts. It can be spent by the people of those districts and not have to rely on some backhanded handout from the general government to get more money that we've already paid in. It's not the general government's money, but that's how they look at it. Your entire income, income of your states, whatever it is, that's all the money of the general government. That's their money. <laughs> but if we had earmarks, we could see how all that money is wasted. And that would be the important part of bringing back earmarks. This is what Jefferson said. This is what Albert Gallatin said. This is what Madison and Monroe believed in. We got to have earmarks so we can see how the federal money, <clears throat> how the federal money is being spent, how it's being wasted, if nothing else. If that happened today and people could actually see how the money is being wasted, I firmly believe there would be a wholesale political revolt, meaning that they would people would boot these people out of office so fast they wouldn't even wait around for the election, I think. They would just start trying to call special elections and get rid of these people because the amount of money that's spent is just ridiculous. And if you could see how it's spent, you can see how it's wasted, which we all have to do in our own budgets, well, then you can start eliminating things that are waste. And earmarks will be one of them. I do agree, though, if given the president a line on veto, that would have to come from a constitutional amendment. So, I mean, all these things are important, but I did want to talk about this because it's been sitting on my desk now for a couple of weeks, and uh, I wanted to get it into a podcast talking about earmarks. It is an essential issue, but one that's often a confusing issue for people. Well, I can't support earmarks because I'm a conservative and these things are pork. Trust me, you're going to get pork anyways. It's pork with just a little sauce, as Hamilton said at one point, and it's one of the funny quotes from Hamilton. You're going to get the earmarks. It's just a matter of how you're going to get the earmarks. If they're going to be lo lobbed in with the spending bill, if the people who decide how they're going to divvy up the money want to waste money, they're going to do it anyways. So go out and tell your congressman you want earmarks. 
You want these things, and you want to report on every earmark that he proposed, every amount of money that he proposed, and when he does that, you'll decide if you're going to vote for him or not. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>